0: As we turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 on page 2 of these black Bibles around you, the sermon title in your bulletin is the story of marriage. Probably that one word, when said a certain way, brings to mind a 1970s movie or a 1980s movie, marriage. Does any of you, do any of you know the movie I'm referring to? Marriage is what brings us together today. If you don't know, it's the Princess of the Bride, Princess Bride. Um, the interesting thing about that statement is that he says marriage is what brings us together today, and then he says marriage that. Blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. The movie was in the middle of the 1980s, but since 1969 and our country's decision to approve no-fault divorce, people are getting married less and less. Recent statistics I've come across say that one-third less people in the U.S. have been getting married since 1969 those who are getting married are not happy approval ratings of marriage are down lower than they've ever been most people who are married or more than ever have said that they are not happy with the way their marriage is going as a result divorces tripled people are not staying in their marriages and furthermore we have seen and probably should not be surprised that after such a redefinition of marriage in 1969, we see further redefinitions in recent years by judges and courts in our day. Which brings us back to Princess Bride, marriage. It's what's brought us here together today for the study in God's Word, but is it really a blessed arrangement, a dream within a dream? I want to argue today that yes, It is a blessed arrangement, and so in today's message, my hope for the tone for which you will receive is that this sermon message will not be mostly for the married people, but for all of us, single, divorced, widowed, regardless of your status, longing to be married, sick of your marriage, happily married. My hope is that we will hear from God's word the beauty of marriage, that this message will not be so much of an attack of the world out there, looking down and condescending those who want to redefine marriage, but rather an example of how you and I should delight in the glory and beauty of God's design, that marriage is good, that marital intimacy is good, that Jesus marriage to His church is great. So instead of spending our time focusing on what we're against, we're against divorce, we're against homosexuality, we're against polygamy, we're against, we're against... Why not? For these next few minutes, we focus on what we are for, what we can delight and rejoice in. If the sermon is not an intellectual teaching or a charge necessarily have you go out and get something done, be a better married spouse, but rather the sermon is first and foremost in the center of a worship service. Might these words in Genesis 2, 24 and 25 lead you to further worship the God who we've come together to worship? Let's read this scripture passage. Verse 24 and 25. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I have three points for our application, meditation, focus from these verses. The priority of marriage, the permanence of marriage, and the passion in marriage. So, three simple Ps. Priority, permanence, and passion. My hope is that all of us who are married will have things for us to reflect on throughout this message, so we will grow in our earthly marriages, but that all of us, like I said earlier, regardless of our status, we will see that all of these points are just appetizers to prepare you for the main course of God's marriage to you. First, the priority of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. This, I believe, speaks to the priority of marriage over other relationships. The man will leave his father and his mother. And when you read that, when you hear it, most of you, I'm assuming, are probably thinking, okay, no big deal. That's what happens. That's what happens when you get married. You leave your parents' house and you go move in with someone else. But we don't read the Bible and how it first hits us in the 21st century. read the Bible wanting to know, how did these words impact its first hearers? And its first hearers lived in an ancient world 3,000 years ago, and the loyalty to your parents was the most important priority in relationships. And then, when you understand that this word leave is not just simply, hey, leave the house, because in some respects, in this ancient culture, they would actually stay in the same home. It's not about leaving the physical home and just moving into another home. Elsewhere, this word is translated forsake or abandon. Insert that word, that picture. Would that be startling? knowing that you live in a culture where your honor to your mom and dad is the primary relationship, the focus. And it says, therefore a man will abandon his father and his mother. He will forsake them. The word abandon is used sometimes to talk about abandoning a house and leaving it empty, abandoning a city, or neglecting the poor. Sometimes this word is used to talk about Israel forsaking its covenant with God. Men, we should understand if we're married that our wife takes precedent. All of us, we should understand that in marriage, the marriage relationship takes precedent over our parents' relationship, over our in-laws, over our jobs. When you read through the laws of the book of Moses... Referred to this again and again, Genesis is the start of the five books of Moses. So right from the start, you see, in marriage, this is more important than other duties like war. Imagine telling your buddies that are about to go and give their lives in war. Sorry, I got a wife to take care of. But a newly married man must not go out to war. He must stay with his wife. See how countercultural this is? How pri... The priority of the wife in Scripture over parents, over your duties, your job, and over your children. Married men and women, we must ask ourselves, does our spouse take precedent over the relationship with our in-laws, our parents, our jobs, or our children? Many marriages crumble because of this first mistake. We do not live by our parents' rules or ways and just assume, well, that's just the way we do it. I'm going to keep just living in this way. You have now joined and made a new family, so you together collectively make make new rules, new patterns and ways of doing things. So many young married couples and Premarital couples need to think through and understand that you are creating a new family. Christine and I struggled mightily in our first couple years at figuring out some of these points. I put ministry over my wife again and again in the first few years of my marriage. Every time I said yes, I thought I was saying yes to Jesus, but I was saying no to my bride. And it hurt our early years of marriage. This isn't a hard thing sometimes to learn. You might be saying yes to good things. But men, understand that this is a key priority in your life. You leave your father and mother, and you cling, you hold fast to your wife. Parents very easily, women in particular, can struggle to find companionship in their children instead of their spouse. A recent modern study explains that many child abuse cases have been the result of parents not hating their children, but loving them and smothering too much. If you overwhelm your child with pressure to perform, to find your joy in them or your relationship with them, and then they don't perform because they're young and they're immature and they're not performing like they should, You get angry. You lose control. You've made your child and their companionship an idol and put it in an unhealthy place. It was never meant for. Our children will be raised, and then they will leave the home, and then probably, if Lord willing, you live a decent, normal life, you will live decades with your spouse with no children in the home. So if you put all of your eggs in the children basket for companionship, You'll be left empty nesters with no love in your marriage. We have a lot of young families in this church, so this is especially poignant for those young families to realize early on, your children cannot be your primary companion. Your spouse is. It does not say in this text that we shall leave our father and our mother, we shall make children, and we shall pour all of our lives and hopes and dreams into our children. This does not mean that we don't love our children. Prioritize them. It means that our priorities need to be proper. Earthly marriages happen when a man leaves, abandons, forsakes his father and his mother. Many things for us to think about in our earthly marriages, but for all of us, regardless of our status, this point is so helpful as we think about our marriage to God. If an earthly marriage begins when a man forsakes his father and his mother, have you considered that a marriage between Christ and the church, between heaven and earth, happened when the father forsook his son? The words of Jesus should be ringing in your ear when Jesus is hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer, because Jesus so prioritized, so identified with his bride, that he left the Father's home, came down to the earth as a man, and he took on the sins of man on the cross. And the Father turned his face from the Son. A marriage happens here on earth when a man forsakes his Father. But the ultimate marriage happened when the Father forsook the Son as he chose to wed himself to you and to me. Only for a short time, though, for that same God raised Christ from the dead so that all of us, single, married, widowed, divorced, will have a picture, an illustration of what it means to become a Christian. That we now have a resurrected Lord that we can be married and wed to forever. And therefore, we have new priorities in the same way that our spouse becomes a new priority. So much more than does Jesus Christ become the Lord of your life. How much more should you prioritize God and his family? How much more should you prioritize him and his word and time alone with him in prayer? If your marriage needs daily conversations, if your marriage needs time of dates and getaways and vacations together, how much more do you need time with your bridegroom, Jesus Christ? Would we be able to tell by your prioritization of Jesus that you, in fact, are married or are you living as if you are separated or divorced from him? Friends, we need to think through this point not just for our married lives here on earth, much to apply in those areas, but all of you in this room can be thinking about your priority with your marriage relationship. If he, if he so prioritized you in this way, how can you not Give just little bits of your time, your money, your energy to prioritize this relationship. Ask yourself this question, what must God do? What more could he do to show how much he has prioritized his relationship with his bride, the church? Could he do anything else to show his depth of love And his willingness to forsake all other relationships. Leave his home and join into a relationship with you. This, my friends, is the priority of marriage. The second idea we see is the permanence of marriage in the next phrase. Therefore, a man shall abandon and forsake his father and his mother, and then he shall hold fast to his wife. Once you forsake your father and mother you hold fast and you never leave your spouse one of the ways this word hold fast is used in the hebrew text gives quite an interesting picture i don't know how familiar you are with crocodiles but apparently crocodiles skin is made of scales all over it, it creates this armor of protection The word to describe how these scales are stuck to the belly and the back of a crocodile is the word hold fast here, to stick. You're to stick to your spouse in the same way that the scales on a crocodile stick. My guess is most of us have not wrestled any crocodiles, so we may not have the up-close and personal experience of trying to peel back its scales. Another image is that of a welder or a solderer. Two people are becoming one, as we're about to see. And they are welded and they are sodded together. They're stuck. And this sticking together is not a temporary tape job. This is a sticking that lasts. All through chapter 2, we should see that this is the doing of God. The Lord God says in verse 21. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. It was the Lord God who took the, the, the rib and closed it up with flesh. The Lord God took that rib and he made a woman. And then notice what it says in verse 22. It was the Lord God who brought her to the man. Many people talk about this as the first wedding, the first marriage. Well, then it is if, as if the Lord God is the one who is walking the bride down the aisle to bring her to the man. Who was the first father to give the bride away? God. And then, like a pastor is giving away his bride and walking his bride down the aisle, started thinking about this exchange that might happen if my girls ask me to both officiate their wedding and then bring them down the aisle. It's as if God brings their bride down the aisle and then gives her to the man and then turns around and takes the place of the aficionado and then says, I will officiate this wedding and bring you together. This is why when we go to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus says these words, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus is reading Genesis chapter 2, and he understands that this idea of holding fast is the doing of God, the initiative of God, God is the one who put man and woman together here in Genesis 2 and every time onward. If you're married today, realize that God has mystically, supernaturally brought two people and brought them together as one. And therefore, no man shall separate what God has done, even if you think that she is not as physically attracted as she used to be. Staying married is not about staying in Eros love, as John Piper has said. It's not about being compatible or having things in common. Staying married is about keeping a promise and saying, I will stick with you till death do us part. That's what the vows are all about. Stanley Hauerwas is a professor at Duke University, and he makes, I think, quite a wise observation when he says, you will never marry the perfect person. Because whoever you marry, the moment you marry them, they become a new person when they get married to you. Don't you realize that the marriage union so changes people day after day and week after week and month after month that the person that you think you're marrying will not be the person you find in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. For better or for worse, For richer, for poorer, they will be a different person because you are with them in this union of one flesh. You will change each other. You will get older physically. Our bodies will fall apart. Skin will sag. Eyes will droop. Hair will fall out, change colors. I've had many young men, as I've done college ministry, single men ask me, how important, Pastor Phil, is physical attraction to get married? I said, well, how long do you want to be married to them? Just for the first 10 years when they're in their prime? Before they have children? Or for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if so, God would bless you. And your bodies are still holding together just by a little bit. Do you want to be that old, sweet couple that's holding hands, kissing each other goodnight? Well, then physical attraction has a part to play. But if it's the first and foremost, if that's what you think marriage is about, then you are mistaken. It's about keeping a promise to someone. The elders of embassy have spent time together over the last couple years thinking about divorce We've put together a little one-page document to help summarize some of the Bible's teaching on divorce. If you would be interested, I can send you that document. One of the statements that we make in that document is that we as elders, even though we see throughout the history of the church and throughout the Bible that there might be provisions for you to be allowed to get a divorce, we will almost never counsel you and urge you to get a divorce. We will fight for your marriages and urge you and encourage you to stay together. That doesn't mean that if, as I've said in past weeks, if someone is physically abusive, that we're going to say, "Oh, just keep getting beat by him or her." To be sexually abused, or to be verbally abused. Using common sense. On those points and matters, your elders want you to know that if you say, well, I'm falling out of love or we just don't have anything in common anymore, we are going to fight for you to stay in your marriage. My encouragement to you singles is that you would pray for and help in any way that you can to protect marriages from falling apart in this church and in the friendships that you have. Do you realize that some of you are single and you have a voice to speak into married friends? They might be struggling and they might confide in you. What counsel are you going to give? What's your disposition going to be? If you're single and you're still hoping and longing to be married, are you seeing how important it is not just the physical beauty on the external outward appearance or the quote-unquote surface-level compatibility, but the character of this person that you might spend the rest of your life with. Read 1 Peter chapter 3 sometime, or 1 Timothy 2, the inward beauty is what God would encourage you to pursue when you're pursuing a spouse. The reason this point matters for all of us, especially those of us who would call ourselves Christians, is that God promises that He will never, ever leave us. The books of Moses end and begin with similar words. A man shall leave and forsake his father and his mother. He will hold fast. He will stay with. He will never forsake and leave his wife. He will stay with her. Deuteronomy 31, Moses tells Joshua, be courageous. Do not be afraid for the Lord your God will go with you and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. When you hear this point that our marriages here on earth should be together stuck for life, it should remind us of the permanence of God's covenant that he will never break his promise. He will never leave you. So no matter how bad you've been, no matter how sinful and dirty you feel, he he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. No matter how ugly you think you're getting, The worst thing about divorce is not the issues that will happen in the court, the fighting over children, the disputes about money or possessions. The worst thing about divorce is that it is selling to the world a picture. It is painting a picture to the world that is so different than what God has done through Jesus Christ. In Tim Keller's marvelous book, he makes this point quite clear when he takes our focus from marriage and points it right to the cross. And he said, when Jesus looked down from the cross, he did not think, I'm going to give myself to you because you are so attractive. No, he hung on the cross in agony. He looked down at us as we denied him, as we forsook him, as we abandoned him and betrayed him. And in the greatest act of love in human history, he stayed on the cross. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. He loved us with a love, not because we were lovely to him, but so that he could make us lovely. The greatest act of love in human history was a groom staying. And as you look at that cross, stare right at those nails. He stayed. He bound himself. He stuck himself to the cross and he could have had a thousand angels rip him off, but not for a second because of his great, great love. Some of you might feel, oh man, I feel like staying in this marriage is killing me. In God's case, it literally happened. To stay in the marriage between God and Israel, between Christ and the church, It literally killed him. We were the spouse from hell, and God was in the longest, worst marriage of world history. He could have bailed. He had every reason to. Way better reason than you would. But he stayed. Something bigger than our immediate happiness and earthly joys is at stake when we stay in our marriages. Because our spouse is our priority, we understand that marriage is permanent and we stay. Aren't you glad that Jesus stayed? Aren't you glad that Jesus views his covenant bond as permanent, as a promise that he will never, ever break? Let's move on to our third and final point. If marriage is a priority if marriage is permanent. Thirdly, marriage is passionate. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Here's our last phrase. They shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What does this word they shall become one flesh. One flesh. What does that mean? Knowing verse 25 follows right after it, most people think that it means sexual intimacy. It means physical marital intimacy. The one flesh union between a man and woman as they consummate the marriage. This does seem to be a part of the idea. But as we read scripture, it doesn't seem as if that is the only idea. So let's turn our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to let the scriptures interpret the scriptures, see the way that the New Testament authors, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, apply these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, on page 955 in these black Bibles around you, starting in verse 15. And you'll notice Paul the Apostle is going to quote our text and apply it to us. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you... Not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, here's our text, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Does it seem that Paul has on his mind that the one flesh union has physical intimacy attached to it? Answer, I would say, is yes. Does it seem that he has that only in mind, or is there something more and deeper going on in this text? In the same way that you are united to Jesus through the Holy Spirit, so you are united to a person when you perform physical intimacy. The sign for marriage, physical intimacy, of this covenant union is a sign to help teach us of union. That's the point. It's to unite people together. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, all of the above. Souls mingle together in marriage. In the same way that your soul is to be united with Christ. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 and you'll notice Paul used the same text again as we saw in our scripture reading earlier in the service. And notice he doesn't bring up physical intimacy at least explicitly in this text. But he does bring up the bigger, wider point of the union between a man and a woman. Starting in verse 28. "'In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who ever loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church.'" because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The deep union between the one flesh marriage is that you husbands and wives should treat one another as if that person's physical, emotional, spiritual needs are your physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. They're one and the same. In the same way that you wouldn't let yourself starve to death, you husbands should help provide for your wife as if that's your own extension of your own body. So many things could be applied to this point when you start thinking about the implications of it. For example, do you think that there should be scorekeeping in a marriage relationship? Taking, keeping track of who did what as if, well, it's your turn or it's my turn or the sort of scorekeeping that says, hey, I need something equal here rather than I'm going to give and serve as if you're an extension of my own body. If your wife suffers, husbands, do you feel as if that you are suffering with them? If you stub your toe in the middle of the night, do your eyes ever look with disdain or lack of empathy? (laughs) Man, toe. I'm sorry, sorry you're feeling that way, but I'm really kind of indifferent here. Do your hands lack empathy, or do they immediately apply pressure and warmth and love? Oh, toe. (laughs) Do your eyes look resentful when one part of the body seems to be getting healthy and stronger than the other? Huh, why do you get the pedicure toe? How about a little eye treatment up here? I could use something. Is forgiveness not automatic when one part of the body hurts another part and you accidentally, as you're eating, bite your tongue? Ow! Doesn't that hurt? It's like one of the worst things. You bite your own tongue. But your hand doesn't get revenge on your teeth and pick up a hammer or pliers and say, teeth, you deserve discipline. What's wrong with you, teeth? No, you're all members of the same body. You have automatic forgiveness. Teeth, what were you thinking? I'm sorry, the jaw was just out of control. (laughs) Immediate forgiveness. Do you see how this starts to apply? If your wife, your husband, was an extension of your own body and you treated them as if they were yours, would there not be immediate forgiveness? Of course I forgive you. Wouldn't I want to forgive myself? Of course, I'm happy for you. That's awesome. I rejoice with you because your rejoicing is my rejoicing. Of course, I'm not resentful. Of course, I'm sorry. Do you see? This is the union of one flesh. The physical intimacy that happens is just an illustrative picture. I remember one pastor explaining this point about union in marriage and helping us understand how this union with Jesus is unbelievable. I don't know what your circumstances were when you were married, but I was in college. I was 19 years old. I had maybe a couple thousand dollars in the bank account. I had a beat-up car. I had a lot of Old clothes that my wife wanted all to be thrown away. Phil, it's time for a wardrobe change. Wearing the same things from high school. It's time. Let's move on. In other words, I didn't have much. I worked at Domino's, delivering pizzas a couple times. My wife, on the other hand, had a full time job. She had a nicer car, she had newer clothes. Not that I would wear hers, but all of her resources, all of her financial resources became mine instantly when I said, I do. So what this preacher says, and I say to you, on that day when I said, I do, cash flow starts coming in to my bank account. That merging of bank accounts was a joyous occasion where what's hers is mine because I just didn't have that much. Just finished my sophomore year of college. How much more is the incomparable grace that when your bank accounts join with God's, when you become his and he becomes yours. One thing I read this last week that just overwhelmingly warmed my heart was from the testimony of a woman who used to be a tenured professor at Syracuse University and a a huge advocate of the LGBT community before coming to faith in Jesus. Incredible story and testimony. I read both of her books this last week, and as I was reading them, one of them just arrested me right then and there. She said this, my identity used to be in my sexual orientation, but now my identity is in Jesus Christ. Just like Christian in the story Pilgrim's Progress, I have to set the record straight and fuel what resolves this deep and daily repentance to God as I die to myself. I speak to my accuser and I say, you're right. You're right about the depths of my sin. You are more right than you ever know. I am guilty. I am guilty of that and I am guilty of so much more. And you are right, that God should punish me for what I have done, and that punishment that I deserve is death. But what you do not know is this. You do not know that God has said in Romans 6, 3-11, that because of my union with Jesus Christ, I was put on trial. I was taken into custody. I was spat on. I was stripped naked. I was thrashed with metal whips by Pontius Pilate. I was tortured. I was crucified. I was castigated down to hell. Do you ever feel so guilty that you think that your sins should be punished? They already have been. They already have been punished. You don't need to punish yourself any further for your sins because of the union of Jesus Christ. His sin His his righteousness is given to you. Cash flow of righteousness is coming in. And your brokenness, your emptiness is going toward him. This is a beautiful truth. He who became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. I wonder if throughout today, as we think through these different points about the priority, the permanence, and the passion of marriage, that any of you are feeling exposed. Should I say naked? That if we were to take this one area of our life and stand before the holy and righteous God, would you feel confident or would you feel ashamed? Have you prioritized God or your spouse? Do you have passion for the union that God has given you through Jesus Christ to love Him the way that He has loved you? It's interesting that chapter 2 ends with those words they were naked and unashamed. You know what I think that this is doing? I think it's setting up chapter 3. Because in chapter 3 of Genesis, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, verse 8 says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees. In verse 7, it says they sewed leaves together and made themselves loincloths because they knew that they were naked, their eyes were opened. And God says, Who told you that you were naked? Sin has an interesting way of making us feel really exposed and naked and ashamed. But did you know how chapter 3 of Genesis ends? Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Let me read it again. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Who did it? Who covered their nakedness? God did. How did he do it? Skin. Skin. What skin? Almost everybody seems to agree on this point. Animal skin. If Genesis is the introduction to the law of Moses... And the temple and the sacrificial system is by many people arguing the center of the law of Moses. Like what these five books are all about. Could it be that in Genesis 3, as we're introduced to the idea of marriage, as we're introduced to the idea of manhood and womanhood, we're also introduced to the first animal sacrifice that covers over people's sin? If you feel naked, exposed, and full of shame... I turn you to Genesis 3.21 and say, this is the God who covers people, but it takes a blood sacrifice. And that finds its fulfillment not in the animal sacrifice, but in Jesus who clothes you with his righteousness, who clothes you with his love, and he takes all of your sin on himself as he hangs naked on the cross. Why is he hanging naked on the cross? Why are all of his clothes stripped and gambled for? Because he is to be made a mockery. He is to be made a scorning shame to everybody that walks by. That they would laugh and jeer, spit and mock. That's what happened to our Savior. And that's because that's what should have happened to us. I want to close with Martin Luther's words. The third incomparable grace of faith is this, that by faith we are united in our soul to Jesus Christ in the same way that a wife is united to her husband. If Jesus Christ and the soul become one flesh, then it follows that all that they have becomes in common, all the good things, and then also the evil things. So that whatever Jesus possesses, that the believing soul by faith takes on to himself and can boast as his own. Whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims as his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how immeasurable the gain is for the soul. Christ is full of grace, life, salvation. But our souls are full of sin, death, and damnation. When faith steps in, that sin, that death, and that hell belongs to Jesus. And that grace, that life, and that salvation belongs to us. For if he is our husband, how can he give her anything less than what he already has but himself? How can he take to himself anything less than what she is? Therefore, by the wedding ring of our faith, our souls become free from all sin, all fearless, fear of death, safe from hell and endowed with eternal righteousness, life, salvation because of our husband, Jesus Christ. And this is how he concludes Who then can value highly enough these royal nuptials? Who can comprehend the riches of the glory of his grace? I don't think we ever will. Even for all of eternity, you and I will never value and esteem enough or comprehend the riches of what happened when you took the wedding ring that God bowed down on one knee and said, be mine. And by faith you said, yes. If you're here today and you're a Christian, that has, what happened to you? It's as if God in heaven comes down to earth, submits himself on a knee and says, will you marry me? By faith and faith alone. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. It's all of faith. Tears could forever flow, but none, none could atone. God must save and God alone. Let's pray.